T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. California is still reeling more than a week after fast-moving wildfires tore through areas in the north and south of the state. The deadliest of those blazes, the campfire in Butte County, leveled the town of Paradise, and with each passing day, we've seen the death tolls steadily rise. KCBS reporters have been on the scene throughout the week to capture the voices of survivors, telling their stories of harrowing escape. Basically, I watched my house in the rearview mirror burning up. Frustrating evacuation. It's hard to think that all you have in your car is all you've got. And of community members coming together in a time of crisis. They're giving away free food. It's incredible, it really is, and just I'm really proud of this community. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on In Depth, we're going to take a look at what made these fires so devastating, how we can respond as a state, and the path to healing ahead for survivors. First up, I want to bring onto the program one of those KCBS reporters who has been covering the recovery effort. That's reporter Holly Kwan, who has spent her week up in Butte County and has visited Paradise several times. When I spoke to her earlier this week, she was in Chico. The first thing I wanted to ask her, you know, as somebody who has covered numerous California fires for KCBS, what struck her about this one? Probably the level of devastation and the fact that it goes on for miles and miles. There are towns and cities that we've covered fires in Redding, in Yosemite, in obviously the wine, wine country fires. But as I talked to one city councilman, he says, nowhere have you seen an entire city wiped off the map. I mean, it really does look like, people have said, it looks like a bomb went off. When you go into paradise, you look around and it's like a black and white apocalyptic movie. And you just can't Describe, like when you say that there are down power lines and that's why it's not safe, it's not just a down power line that's across the road. It's like I've been describing it as like if you had a cat that was playing with a ball of yarn and then they just kind of left it. I mean, that's kind of sometimes how it looks. You've got like transformers that are hanging between two burnt PG&E poles and there's, you know, wires that are coiled up and they're draped down. They're not across the road anymore because you do have vehicles that are coming in and out, but they're pushed over to the side. And it's just, you know, how on earth are they going to string all of this back, even temporarily, within the next couple of weeks, maybe, to give people an idea of you know, being able to come back into town? I mean, there's, there's no power, so there are no stoplights. Ironically, the thing that is working up there are the solar-powered speed limit signs. Um, I found that a little ironic. Yeah, it's unreal. Uh, turning over from uh, the victims to the uh, search and recovery effort, one opportunity that you've had in this uh, reporting trip that is, I well, on the one hand, somewhat unusual and probably very informative, but uh, uh, in another way, I, I imagine also somewhat disturbing, is uh, you got a chance to tag along with some of the search teams that are looking for remains uh, out, up there in uh, Paradise. So tell me a little bit what you saw there and what you learned. 
This was a search team from Alameda County Sheriff's outfitted in their protective suits and their booties and their breathing apparatus and their helmets. And they were out there going through different uh, addresses. And we, one may have been a home. Another one was an apartment. Eyes up, please. And going there because they were given a list of addresses that they needed to check. Can we send a fire engine up here, please? And I also need a crew up here for that. And for a civilian, um, some things may be look like just debris, but you have to know what to look for. And they call them looking for clues. You look high, you look low, you look behind you, you look to the side. What is it that somebody might do? Where might they have been if they were trying to escape a fire? I spoke to the team leader, Andrew Radivere. He's a um, retired Berkeley cop now doing search, rescue, and recovery. And it's, it's, it's not an easy thing, and, and you have to kind of be very logical and methodical about it. We look in places, bathrooms, bathtubs, uh, bedrooms, beds, uh, driveways, cars, things where we would likely find people who were trying to shelter in place or flee. So these guys are volunteers do you have a sense that this kind of work takes a toll on them? I asked that, and they said, you know, they you, you train with these people, and you talk a lot, and you get to know, I guess you would say, their coworkers, and you know when the talking stops or when people start to get quiet or when the tone changes, and then you know when it starts to be a bit much, and you know to look out for each other, and you know to pay attention to yourself and know when it starts to take a toll, um, you know, everybody wants to be able to do their job and to do it well. And I spoke to one volunteer where he said um, what he does is an internal conversation he has, you know, in his own mind when you happen to find human remains. What I do in my mind is I talk to them. Hey, I'm sorry this happened to you. And I'm sorry your family's going to hurt, but we're going to take you home. And he says that helps soothe his own mind about the kind of work that he's doing. And that, you know, on one hand, it's difficult to find that, but you're also helping bring closure to a family. Before I let you go, Holly, last question. With all this devastation, what is the path forward looking like at this point? You know, I think that this is going to be, um, you know, a disaster that stays with us for quite a while. It's going to be, I think, you know, quite some time before they make paradise safe enough for people to go in. What happens when people go in and actually see what's left of their homes? Then you have to do the, the debris removal, mitigating any kind of you know toxins before they're able to rebuild. And the town itself, their you know, government infrastructure has to decide you know how they want to rebuild. You know, do they want to rebuild smarter? You know, do you try and underground all of the utilities instead of having them, you know, above ground and and susceptible to to fires again? How many of those trees? that these people moved up there for are still going to be able to survive. I mean, everything's been compromised. So, you know, do you cut all those trees down and, and does, the, does the town look the same as it did? Do you carve more ways to get out? How do you improve on this town and make it safer? And what kind of people are going to want to move back in? You know, are the people who lived there before going to say, nah, forget it, I'm, I'm out of here, which we've heard as well. You know, and what kind of people do end up moving back in? That was KCBS reporter Holly Kwan speaking to us from Butte County. We're going to take on some of those questions that she just raised. Just how should fire-ravaged areas rebuild? How will California become more resilient to fires? 
To help us get some answers, I spoke with Keith Gillis. He's Dean Emeritus of the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley and studies wildfire protection planning. Now, when it comes to the causes of these fires, at this point in California, they are all too familiar. We have the usual reasons for these fires. We've got high winds, we have low fuel moisture, high fuel loading. Um, You've heard this a million times. And while the discussion about these disasters has so far largely focused on concerns about forest management in California, with no less than the president raising the issue, Professor Gillis says when it comes to the campfire... This is more of a foothills fire. And the other fire, which people are lumping in with the campfire, the Woolsey fire, is actually a shrubland fire, so not a forest fire at all. And so I think in this case, some of our discussion should move from the idea of forest management to the ideas about what are sustainable communities and cities, uh, what kind of transportation networks do we need to have in place to allow us to live in areas that have a fire ecology which says fire is a natural part of the landscape. So how should Paradise or other communities damaged by fire rebuild in this era of fire threat? Well, in the case of Paradise, residents fleeing by car had a very limited number of exit routes and traffic pileups slowed escapes. So Professor Gillis says widening and upgrading road networks will be key. When we rebuild this time around, there are the general design considerations, how wide roads should be, how far uh, vegetation should be managed away from them. Think about the beautiful roads uh, near me here on the peninsula uh, where we planted eucalyptus at the turn of the century, creating beautiful roads, but hemmed in by trees very close by. So. There are some things we did historically that we don't want to repeat. We designed road networks in some cases with turns in them that were fine for the sort of vehicles that were traveling them at the time, but which will not accommodate a modern uh, urban fire truck. And you want your, your public safety people to rapidly access every place they're trying to protect. Now, all that said, The planning that goes with that is important. And I think it's important to realize Paradise was exemplary for the planning they had done before this incident. So this is a terrible, terrible incident. And the fact that Paradise had done the best they could with their existing infrastructure, thinking about converting roads to one way and so forth during evacuation phase, They saved a lot of lives with their pre-planning, but the next time around you might want an infrastructure which you don't have to plan around. Another aspect of infrastructure that a lot of uh, folks are talking about now is how the buildings themselves are constructed. What needs to change there and how big of a difference could that really uh, make in an extreme uh, fire conditions like what we saw? It can make a really big difference. Um, And I think one way to uh, get a good feel for that is if you look at the drone footage uh, that's been flown recently as you're looking at Paradise, you'll see complete destruction of buildings, but there are still some standing uh, large green trees. And you realize that in this kind of a development, when the fire is uh, being pushed by a wind this hard um, and the housing is... Uh, this densely packed in, 
you realize this was uh, an urban conflagration in a sense that the biggest uh, concentration of fuel within the town of Paradise itself were the structures. And so you want to say, all right, what's the best way to harden our structures when we go into rebuilding? And there are some some things that we know from study of past fires can really help. Although it's part of the California aesthetic, uh, we should never put any kind of a structure with a wood shake shingle type construction in this area, particularly on the roofs, more importantly than the, the sidings, but the, uh, the roofs, uh, which are going to be the recipient of firebrands, uh, you know, being thrown downwind in these high wind speed events. The roofs have to be able to stand a, a, a shower of these firebrands and sort of passively resist ignitions. There are issues with how you construct the eaves of houses to prevent uh, ember intrusion, uh, which then starts the fire burning uh, up in the attic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the fire may be outside the house, but the fire which takes the house down starts inside. Other changes that could help, he says? Maintenance of uh, collections of leaves and needles on roofs. There are issues with how you build decks, especially on sloped topography. Large buildings are vulnerable too. That means, well, you know, you really need to think about maintaining vegetation clearance around them in a big way. There's a lot of design stuff, and this design stuff is well understood at this point. So obviously there's big costs associated there, either with tearing down old infrastructure or paying for expensive new infrastructure. So do you have a sense that there's a growing awareness or a willingness in California to tackle these issues despite the costs? Absolutely. And this is, I think, something that makes wildfire in California and a few other places like Colorado um, stand out as you look at this as a kind of detached academic, uh, which is tough to do given the horrible scenes that we're seeing from this fire. But natural hazards, for most people, uh, are a once, twice in a lifetime experience. Uh, you know, think about living in a floodplain, living somewhere on the rim of fire where you have some earthquake experience, uh, living in a coastal area um, that might have a tsunami risk. These aren't things that you experience on an ongoing basis. And people's reactions to all kinds of risks are heavily determined by their personal exposure to risk. It's one of those things about the psychology of low probability events. Wildfires have been in the news in California consistently, these very large wildfires, um, for most of this period that we've been, uh, say, the period of the drought from 2012 to 2017. And so, unlike a lot of other natural hazards, people are being exposed over and over again to the risks of wildfire. And I think that dramatically changes um, how much uh, kind of social capital there is to draw on to say, what do we need to do things differently? Last question that I want to throw at you. 
is obviously one of the first responses that came to these fires was from President Donald Trump with his tweet essentially accusing California of poor wildland management and threatening to uh, revoke funding for California. So there's this interesting way that this issue has become politicized. And and I don't want to just say on the right end of the political spectrum, I think in response, I've seen a number of more leftward leaning commentators uh, implying that uh, forest land management isn't an issue at all. And that's clearly not true. I mean, even if in this case it wasn't a huge issue, it's still something that California certainly needs to be thinking about. So what is the risk in your mind that this conversation gets derailed by somehow getting politicized? I think the risk that we over-politicize this issue is very high. And that's one of the reasons that I've been so receptive to uh, speaking to the media about it. Um, just saying this is a forest management issue or this is not a forest management issue uh, is quite simplistic. There are always going to be uh, disagreements over the best way to manage forests uh, in any place, in any time. Um, and that's partly because what we want out of forests as a society uh, goes over a wide range of objectives that sometimes compete with each other. We want our forests to produce products. We want our forests to be great watersheds. We want our forests to provide wildlife habitat. We want them to provide an aesthetic environment for recreation. You know, the, the list goes on and the right way to manage for any one of those objectives may be in conflict with another. So, <laughs> We have some land that's managed in ways which will increase uh, the fire risk. Um, and in some cases, that may be the right way to manage some acres. Um, so reducing this to a tweet is never going to be possible. You are listening to In Depth on KCBS as we take a look this week at California's deadly wildfires. We just spoke with Professor Keith Gillis, who told us about some steps California could take to make itself safer from fire as it recovers. But it's not just rebuilding that we need in the wake of these disasters. We also need healing. The scale of the loss for many victims is immense, and the trauma left behind by these fires will linger long after roads have been repaired and buildings mended. So to get a better handle on what the path to healing and resiliency will look like, I spoke with Dr. Cynthia Dowdell. My title is Director of the Medical Reserve Corps of Southern Arizona Interagency Peer Support Team. Dr. Dowdell is a psychotherapist who works with first responders and civilians involved in traumatic incidents. Those have included the Gabby Gifford shootings. That was a year-long intervention. And many other tragedies. I worked with the Aspen Fire in Mount Lemmon and the Little Bear Fire, countless line-of-duty mass casualty shootings, the College of Nursing shootings at the University of Arizona. She's seen a lot, and she's worked with many people who have also seen a lot. So I was hoping she could give us some sense of what survivors are going through and what can be done to support them. You know, when you go through significant uh, loss, such as they have, not only um, personal death loss, uh, maybe community death loss of people that were members of that community and also infrastructure loss. 
it's extremely devastating. It's that's why we term it uh, complicated traumatic grief, because there's a lot of different issues that are involved. The best thing that people can do and what we teach our peer support team members is to psychologically align with people. That means that if they're hurting and they're emotional, that you be present with them during that time. If they're really logical, that you be present with them during that time because the importance is to keep their defense mechanisms in place until they're ready to um, allow some of the emotions or some of their thoughts to come to the forefront and just go shoulder to shoulder with them, as we call it. Also providing them with compassion, empathy, and some understanding. Uh, Traumatic loss such as this is no different than even traumatic brain injury is what we're finding through research. And until you go through it, Unfortunately, people don't understand it. That's why we bring uh, peers together. So even other people that have had significant loss throughout our country and um, have experienced significant death loss, those peers are very instrumental in the healing process because they know how to align with those individuals and guide them through it, guide them on the journey Um, of darkness because you feel like you're in a dark place and people that have had the experience are like a flashlight. They shine a light on the path to help people get through some of the struggles and the processes of complicated traumatic grief. You know, now that these fires have become so commonplace in California, it almost makes me wonder if understanding this sort of trauma and loss is something that we're just all going to have to get a little bit better at because at one point or another, either us ourselves or somebody we know is going to be impacted by natural disaster. So, I mean, is there just some kind of growing awareness or or, or growing adeptness even in these issues that we all need to attain? You know what? you, You said it. Yes, we do need to have a better understanding. And we need to have a better understanding with psychological trauma and how it affects brain health. It's important that um, we understand that sometimes when people have a head injury, that sometimes their personality may change with that actual physical head trauma. Psychological trauma looks no different. That's what we're finding from our veterans returning from the Middle East, that psychological trauma and traumatic brain injury, they present the same. And so people that have had psychological trauma a lot of times feel very much alone that other people don't understand. And people that have had head trauma feel very much alone. They get locked inside their head is a common statement that I hear from people. So that social support piece, I can tell you, is so powerful in understanding and having empathy of people that are traumatized to help them, to help them get through some of the hurdles of the complicated traumatic grief and not to take some of their emotions or their behaviors personally, but to really care for them and love them through it. That's what is important in helping people get through trauma. And so what are the key lessons do you think that we need to learn? What, what, what are the key ways that you think that right now we're misunderstanding this sort of trauma? A lot of people have a hard time seeing people hurt. 
And so they want people to get over the trauma. So they try to uh, disregard some of the major steps in healing. And so it's ignored or it's swept under the carpet. And one of the things is to just, like I said, psychologically align and to help people um, process it in that social support piece. That's what's really important. And sometimes to understand that there's some key issues that are involved, like number calculations for kids in school. Number calculations go out the out the window. And so it affects school performance. College students, it affects that performance. People in the business arena, number calculations are going to go. It's all a part of restabilizing the brain and for brain health. Social support is important. Eating healthy is important. Movement. And so there's a lot of things, mind, body, spirit, that people need to be aware of for not only um, the health of themselves, but their the health of their family members and their community members. It sounds like what you're talking about is just the need for patience and not feeling like you should be forcing somebody through whatever process they're going through. Exactly. You you align with them. You be present in their process. You've stood in the face of some pretty horrific events, and uh, I hope I don't sound too much like I'm bellyaching, but even me as somebody on the sidelines of all this, you know, it, it, it takes a mental toll after a while. It does have an effect, and I'm not even one of the reporters that's out there right now, so I really don't want to be bellyaching too much, but I got to imagine we have plenty of listeners that have gone through round after round after round of these disasters and are feeling that way themselves, that this, to some extent, takes a toll. And I just got to ask for somebody like you who has shown the resilience to go through much closer to these uh, horrific events again and again and again, what has made it possible for you to have that level of resilience? You know, I have a lot of peers and colleagues that um, are my social support system that I reach out to, that I feel safe with, and that have been there for me. I have to tell you that after the Gabby Gifford shootings, uh, I had to keep it together because I was leading a large interdisciplinary team to work with all professionals and also community members. But I have to tell you, I cried. I cried multiple times. And I can remember one time hearing um, Colonel McKnight from Black Hawk Down speak and one thing that struck me with him is how important it is to be able to cry and to feel and have empathy for what has happened. And I am very, very fortunate for my social support system. I also have a very, very strong faith that where I've seen miraculous things happen. And so that is what has got me through. And the research shows people that have a spiritual connection do much better in situations like this. And so people have to define that for themselves. And that's what we do in a critical incident such as this. We help people find their way through um, not only the psychological part of it, but the spiritual part of it as well. All right, Dr. Uh, Cynthia Dowdell, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome, and my heart goes out to Californians. 
Psychological support is out there for survivors. The Disaster Distress Helpline is a 24-7, year-round national hotline providing immediate crisis counseling for people who are experiencing emotional distress related to disasters. It's a toll-free, multilingual, and confidential number. Call 1-800-985-5990 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. Again, that's 1-800-985-5990. Learn more at kcbsradio.com. That is it for In-Depth Today. I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.